Uh, If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to chapter 3 of Romans. Or if you have your ThinkPads or whatever whatever downloads, you might have somebody stop me after the first service with their little computer in hand and said, what translation of the Bible do you use? ESV. Okay, got it. And they were off and running. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I just have kind of the old-fashioned version. So now we're going to have a little fun this morning. You might not think it's fun, but I do. I need six volunteers. You don't have to do anything. You just have to stand. Okay. So I'm going to pick, uh, Lauren, you and Brent can come on up because you have an acting background. So you two and I, okay, come on. I need, come on up. Brehab brothers right there. Both of you come on up. That's four. I need two more. Jim Davis, I'll use you. Come on up. And I need one more person who's waving in the back. Schaefer, come on up. All right. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. I actually need one more person who is pretty confident they're the smartest person here. Who would that be? Uh, Marianne? Okay, Marianne, come on up. All right. Now, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not going to pick on you. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. I just have one question. Who wants to play God? Okay. All right. So what I need you to do is come and stand right over there by the offering church. Just stand over there by it. And we've got an offering. We're going to put those two things together. Good. All right, now you're going to stand there. Now, he's God, okay? Over here is as far as you can get away from God, okay? However you want to imagine that in your mind, morally, emotionally, spiritually. This is, this is as far away as possible, all right? You're the smart one. Get out of the line. You can't stand there. Okay. Jim, it, now, Marianne, here's where you got to pay attention, okay? Jim is Albert Pujols. Okay, the younger, uh, I forgot the younger brother's name, ben. ben, I'm very sorry, Ben is Mother Teresa, you got it, okay, Lauren is Tom Ricks, Brent is Madonna, and Shafe, you're Hitler, Marianne? Close to God, far away from God. Put them where they should be. No, I said I need a smart person. And I do have a sermon to preach, so. Okay, so there goes Mother Teresa. Okay, all right. Do you need reminding who people are? Remember, you work for me. Okay. Now, this is, you have the whole front to use. Does anybody want to test that smart theory right about now? (laughs) That's why I walked over. I said, you have the whole, sorry, Shafe. All right, wait, who are you? You're Madonna. You have a nice voice, Madonna. I don't know if you should be that far away from God. Don't you? All right, is that about right? You got about right? She got about right? All right, let's give our volunteers a hand. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lord, for doing a great job. (laughs) Most of us have a sliding scale. You're a good person. You work hard. You do the right things. Mother Teresa, I mean, my goodness, who has done more for the world than Mother Teresa in the last couple hundred years? She's right up there close, okay? Then you you have the epitome of evil, And he's way on the other side. And we have the sliding scale. And we judge according to kind of actions of what we see 
as to the character and the content of a person's heart and a person's life. Is that an accurate assessment? Is that a biblical assessment? Is that what God says? Does God say, you know, some of you are doing pretty good and you at least, eh, 50, you at least over here, okay? Some of you are doing pretty bad and some of you are way over here. Is God's scale the same as ours? Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Hear the word of God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul writes, and Paul was Jewish uh, by background. His mother was Jewish, and so uh, he's, he's including himself in the Jewish nation. Are we better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And now he quotes out of the Old Testament. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we have worshiped you with our, with our voices We have sung your praise. We have worshiped you in the sacrament of baptism and acknowledging that uh, if you don't redeem, if you don't don't show mercy, then we are lost. But we, we long to be part of that process in the lives of our children. Father, we've worshiped you in, in thinking about the opportunities for uh, affirming and celebrating life and, and caring for some of the most defenseless in our culture. Father, we've even celebrated you and worshiped you with our laughter and our, and our silly creativity. Father, now we come to worship you with our minds, with our intellects, with our hearts. I pray that you would help us to engage with you. Lord, every person in this room, whether we believe that you exist and know you or whether we are questioning that or wondering or not sure, whether we are confident in our faith or whether we are floundering in our faith, Lord, every one of us needs to hear your word, not my words. They carry no weight. They're of no importance. It is only the eternal truth of God that can bring about the healing in our souls that we so desperately need. So, Lord, I pray that you forgive me for my sins. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Um, Kind of what that little fun game up, up here demonstrated a little bit earlier is that there are basically two schools of thought uh, that, that exist. One of them is uh, basically the human character is fundamentally good. Uh, there are going to be some rotten apples. There are going to be some, you know, some ones that, that don't work out. And, and some will be better and some will be worse. But fundamentally, most people are good. And if we just give enough you know, education, enough love in the family, enough pointing in the right direction, pretty much we work out okay. There's another school of thought that says, actually, mankind is fundamentally flawed that our character has been so disrupted by the power of sin that we no longer desire to do what's good. There's actually a resident evil, so to speak, that is abiding within us. And we don't need just, uh, not that education is bad or encouragement is bad, those are good things, but our fundamental need is not for encouragement 
or being pointed in the right direction. Mankind's fundamental need is for salvation. Now, there are two very distinct schools of thought that can look very similar. For the first three chapters of Romans, Paul has been building the argument for the latter, that man's in his very soul, in his very core of his being, that mankind, men and women, boys and girls, are essentially flawed by sin. And that we are not fundamentally good people, not compared to one another, but in God's eyes, we're fundamentally broken. And he comes to the apex of that argument in the passage of Scripture we just read this morning. So the question for you and me to consider is, do we understand the degree to which we are flawed? Do we understand the true nature of our character? Do we even want to look? Do we even want to consider what Scripture says about who we really are? Or would we rather just kind of blindly go on our way and feel better about ourselves and live in that wonderful land of denial? Well, Paul doesn't pull any punches because the Holy Spirit, the Lord God, loves us enough to tell us the truth. And he's going to paint for us a picture that is not very pleasant but is extraordinarily accurate. So I want to walk through these verses and see what we can learn about ourselves this morning because beginning next Sunday, Paul takes this information of who we are and our desperate need for salvation and he begins to show us what God is going to do. Uh, In verse 9, we have what I'm going to call an important introduction to the conversation. Paul says, are we Jews any better off? Now, what I want you to notice, and I've underlined it, that the word we is in the second person plural. Paul is identifying with a group of folks. He isn't standing up there saying, now, are you doing what you should be doing? He isn't saying, you know, I'm really good. I have it all figured out. You just need to rise to my level. Paul is saying, we're all in this together. Are we Jews any better off? He's not, you know, with a haughty spirit looking down on you. Nobody likes to be around people that think they're better than you. Whether it's a a preacher preaching a sermon, whether it's a friend having a cup of coffee, you don't want people to treat you in a condescending way. And Paul is very humble in this passage. He doesn't say, you guys are in a big mess, but I'm okay. He says, we all are in a crisis. Are we Jews any better off in humility? He displays that, that he understands that he's one of these folks that are all under sin. Now, Paul has what I believe to be a radically different understanding of sin than you and I do. Most of us think sin, equate sin with deeds, with what we do, okay? So the other day, I ran a red light. I wasn't supposed to do that. That was a sin. The other day, I, you know, I was in high school, and we had a test. I didn't know the answer to question 17. I kind of glanced over. I looked at the smart kid, got it, and I circled it, moved on. That really wasn't what I should do. That was wrong. I filled out my income taxes last year, and I kind of forgot to mention several thousand dollars of income. That wasn't too good. That was wrong. And we equate sin with what we do. Paul says that that popular notion of, you know, we're primarily good, but we have some flaws, is radically the wrong focus. Sin is not, first and foremost, about deeds. Now, all those things I mentioned, those are sins. Those are the, the actions. But they come out of a character that is flawed and is controlled and is marred. Paul uses sin in the singular tense there. And what he means by this is this. Sin is a dynamic power of evil that enslaves all of mankind. Sin has the same impact on me as it has on you, as it has on him, as it has on her, all through the ages. 
there is an inner grip of malevolence corrupting our very nature to its core. Sin becomes our identity. It's not what we do. It is who we are. So as, as one theologian put it, and it's a double negative, I, I wish I could figure out a way to write it better, but it makes the point, we do not have the power not to sin. Apart from Christ, I don't care how hard you try, I don't care how committed I am to living a, a righteous life, eventually I'm going to mess it up. Maybe in the first five days, maybe in the first five minutes, probably in the first five seconds after I've made that decision to never sin again, I'm going to do it. Why? It's because it's who Tom Ricks is. That's the wrong way to say the sentence, but you get my point. I'm identified by my sin. There's a Russian poet and novelist in the 19th century, Ivan uh, Turgenev, and he's not a really well-known author, but he, he did some, some, uh, some good work. But he said this as it relates to uh, this idea of being under sin. He was not a Christian, but he put his finger right on it. He said this as he looked at the world around him. I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. Doesn't feel very good, does it? <laughs> but it's accurate. It's true. You look into my heart, you let me look into your heart, we're not going to like what we see. We are identified with sin. But I love the fact that Paul introduces this to us again and says, I'm right there with you. Well, how has it impacted us? Well, um, I, I'm going to call uh, the first aspect of, of, of his uh, observations here as a depraved character. So we talk about kind of who we are as a person. And, and in verses 10 through 12, Paul uses this phrase over and over again. No one, no one, no one. Let me read these verses for you one more time. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Four times in about one sentence, Paul says no one. It's an all-inclusive statement. Every person, you and me included. What are all these negatives? Well, the first thing he says is no one is righteous. And the way he uses the word righteous in this phrase means that, that we uh, righteous means lacking moral decay or without flaw. And Paul would say none of us fall into that category. No one can say they're perfect. No one can say I'm without sin. No one can say that I've never made a moral misstep in my life. We are none of us righteous. Um, a couple of the younger Brehobs were up here a few minutes ago, but, but Joe is an elder here at Green Tree, and Joe also um, is in the diamond business. And I love talking, and I'm not doing that to get you to go buy diamonds from him, but he does a good job. But I love talking to people who I, they do something I have, I have no knowledge of whatsoever. And so the last couple of years that Joe's been an elder, we talk about what's going on at Green Tree in our ministries. But I ask him questions about diamonds because I don't know a thing about diamonds. And it's really fascinating to kind of hear somebody talk about something that, that you know nothing about. Um, and, and, and we're talking, and, I, and at one point I said, now, what does a perfect diamond look like? How, what is a perfect diamond? And, and Joe, you know, he's kind of like, you know, Obi-Wan, kind of the young disciple. Oh, Tom, 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 you know, you, will you never learn? But he said, there's no such thing as a perfect diamond. Now, the more money you spend, the fewer the flaws, but there are no flawless diamonds. There are no flawless diamonds. Now, y'all look good this morning. You're all cute and you're dressed up and you took a bath before you came to church and you brushed your teeth and you hug each other when I say hug each other and when I say welcome somebody to Green Tree, you welcome them to Green Tree and we ood and over the babies. But guess what? Every diamond in this room is seriously flawed, starting with the pastor. Our condition 
is one of unrighteousness. No one's righteous. Paul also says no one understands. No one understands what, Paul? No one understands God, his glory, his beauty, and his perfection. The negative impact of sin on my life partially is is that it affects my spiritual intellect. I don't know God the way I should. I took statistics in college twice. You think about that a little bit. Right. I didn't pass the first time. The guy that actually taught the first class was was a, a statistician. That's like brainiac beyond whatever. I don't know why anybody would want to do that, but, but he was literally, there are like 300 of them in the country. He was a statistician. The day, first day of class and a day of class, I had no idea what that man was talking about. And there was no way I was going to figure it out. And he's like, okay, put this equation in your calculator. And I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. What, 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 what let's get out of here. So that I failed that class. So I signed up, to take it again, but I took it through the university of Tennessee at Knoxville correspondence and I got in good with the teacher's assistant talking about Vols football. And I got, a, I got an A-plus the second time around. Now, I didn't know anything else about st- statistics when I got the A-plus, when I got the F. But here's the other thing I did. I went to the professor who didn't know I was taking the class. I said, hey, how does this equation work? Oh, it works like this. I lied my way through statistics. That's the truth. I'm not, I'm not proud of that, but it's true. Some of you have done some things like that. Guess what? There was no way in the world, no matter what that man did, I was ever going to understand statistics. I had a mental flaw in my mind. I could not grasp it. Paul says we are mentally flawed when it comes to spiritually understanding the glory and the beauty and the character of God. He also says that, we're, that no one seeks for God, which he means by that a focused, determined search. We were up at, um, oh, what's that? We had dinner Friday. 119 North Kirkwood, the new tapas thing in downtown Kirkwood. And the gal that was, one of the gals that works there had lost the diamond out of her, I'm on a diamond theme this morning, had lost the diamond out of her ring. She'd been married like 25 years. And she'd been frantically looking for it. And I'm like, you know what? We can call off everybody's dinner. Let's all get down on the floor. I want to find this thing. You know, let's get a search going. Maybe you remember uh, uh, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones. He's just determined he's going to find the lost Ark of the Covenant. And he looks and he looks and he looks and he doesn't stop until he, until he does it. My guess is that after everybody left the restaurant, they tore that place apart. I hope that she found her ring. But when Paul says, no one seeks for God, he doesn't mean that you don't say, well, you know, I'm thinking about God and I have an idea of what God is in my mind. He's saying nobody really looks for God the way we should. No one has as a passion in their heart and mind the desire to know God in a way that means they're going to seek and seek and seek until they find. And finally, he says, no one does good. We've lost that for which we were created to do and to be. We have a depraved character. Now, Paul's going to say, now, how does this play itself out? Because if you have, if, if your insides aren't working, then the outside isn't going to look real great. And he gives us two examples of what I'm going to call depraved conduct. So as you look at our conduct in verses 13 and 14, he talks about our speech. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips, under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Paul uses a very simple and easy example for us to get a hold of. He talks about how we talk. He says, let's start with the throat, where the words begin, where the muscles start to work and, and, and feed until the word comes out of your mouth. What is the throat like? The throat is like an open grave. Now, we're not talking about a hole in the ground. We're not talking about a place where they, you know, they've dug it and then there's the casket sitting over there and it's all neat and tidy and, 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 and it's sad, but you know, it, it, it doesn't... You know, um, 
physically uh, feel bad. He's talking about open graves in his day, which when you rolled the, the stone away from the sepulcher, everybody who's been in your family for the last however many years is buried in there, and it smells like everybody's been buried in there. I don't want to be gross, but what Paul is saying is there's a stench of death that comes from the character of sin that shows itself for what it is in the way in which we speak. He goes on to say their tongues practice deceit. We just, we just naturally shade the truth. Little white lies, big horrendous lies, and everything in between comes from the character of our heart. And where does that lead to? Well, deadly lips. The venom of asps is under their lips. What happens when our speech is conducted in this way? We kill each other. We wipe each other out with our words. Probably every person in this room has been the victim of somebody's abusive speech at one time or another. Probably the vast majority of us in this room at one time or another have been abusive in our speech to someone else. Why? Because Paul says we are flawed in our very core of our being. And then in verses 15 through 17, he gives us one more example, the example of violence. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Bloodshed, ruin, misery, ignorance of spiritual peace leads to unending human conflict. And at times that conflict becomes physical and it becomes violent. Why, why do we have a Sanctity of Life Sunday? Why are our unborn children not even safe in the womb? I'm, I'm sorry to offend you if I do with this next statement, but it's true. It's because... We are a people of violence. Recently, a historian did some work on, on how many years the world has been in some form or shape of war on some part of the planet. He went back 3,421 years and found out that there were only 368 years that he could point to and say there was not a human conflict. The vast majority of recorded history, over 90% of recorded history, is a history of violence. Why is that? You cannot explain that away by saying, well, we're fundamentally good, but every once in a while a bad apple crops up. It is there. Our conduct is depraved because our character is depraved. What is the reason for this? Verse 18, what is the cause? Paul says it in one very simple sentence. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, rejecting a right relationship with God does not create a spiritual vacuum but animosity towards God. And my animosity towards God spills out into my relationship with you to the point where my speech can be awful and actually my, 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 literally my physical being can react violently and yours can too. You see, when we reject God, when we turn and we rebel and love for God does not enter into our thinking, something else does. Now, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Don't you feel better about yourself? Aren't you glad you battled the snow? This is a very difficult message to hear. Is there any hope? Paul is painting a very bleak picture. Well, I actually believe in the last two verses of this passage, Paul begins to ever so slightly crack open the door if we will look carefully. Verse 19 says this, Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that the consciousness of sin creates accountability. 
when you harm another person, you say a sharp word, right? You, you, you snap at them. And you go, gosh, I wish I, I wish I could just take that back. What are you saying? I am conscious of my sin. Paul says you have to take it a step further, friend. You have to understand that you can't just be conscious of the action. You have to be conscious of the character. You have to understand that that comes out of who you are. You're, you're acting naturally when you do that. And if you can be aware of that, and if you can understand that God is going to call you to account, God is going to call me to account for all of my sin, that consciousness at least awakens my mind to the fact that I have a problem. My wife, Cindy, from the very earliest of ages of our kids, taught me so clearly how important it was as parents to make sure that our children understood that where, wherever there was um, uh, behavior, there, there was going to be an expectation. And it needed to be set out clearly. So even for a two-year-old, okay, you're playing with those three toys. When mommy tells you it's time to put those three toys away, you have to pick them up and put them away, or there'll be a timeout on the bed. You'll have to sit by yourself. Do you understand that? Do you have any questions about that? Okay, so when the child doesn't pick up their toys and you say you were supposed to, they don't say, I didn't know. I wasn't clear on the expectations. Take that all the way through to your children. Leave for college. Son, daughter, here's the curfew. Son, daughter, here's what we expect out of your dating relationship. Son, daughter, here's what we want you to do in school. Whatever it is, we give the expectations first so that we're not reacting. We're simply reinforcing what we said in the first place. And God is saying this accountability I want you to understand the expectation. I want you to know that the only thing that that suffices is complete and total righteousness. And when we look at that, we go, boy, we're accountable to somebody. (laughs) I've got some things for which I'm going to have to answer. And within there, there's a sliver of hope because of verse 20 as well. Paul says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now we have a diagnosis. What has the law shown us? When I know that I've spoken, I shouldn't have said that. What does that tell me? It tells me that I have a problem. I have a diagnosis. And that's the first step towards a cure. I have a friend who's been trying to figure out for a while uh, a physical problem. And, and, he, and he's been going to some doctors and talking. And it's been around for a little while. And, and, uh, and they've been trying to diagnose it and figure it out. And really all they've been able to do so far is kind of check off what it isn't. Now, that's a good first step, but, it, but it's not all of it. And I'm, and I'm praying and I'm hopeful that they get to, you know, what exactly is it. But knowing what it isn't, you know, when you've been able to say, okay, well, there, there's no stomach cancer, that's not bad information to have, right? Because it begins to tell you what direction you can head, what things you can expect and maybe what you can't expect. Having a spiritual diagnosis, diagnosis is the first step. It's not the cure, but if we know we're sick, then we know we need serious help. This is a very unpleasant truth about humanity this morning. That's why I tried to do the little sketch to lighten it up just a little bit. But our true character and conduct is revealed in these verses in Romans chapter 3. The emperor's clothing is seen for what it is. It's our spiritual nakedness and destitute. Two questions this morning and we're done. First one is this. Will we accept this truth about ourselves? Part of this uh, sermon, my, my gut tells me, because I've wrestled with it all week, my temptation has been to say, yeah, but don't you know the good stuff? <laughs> let, me, let me skip real quick to the good stuff and not just sit and say, you know what? You could put Tom Ricks at the top of those sentences and you would be dead on the money. 
You see, friends, the first step is that I've got to acknowledge that this is not, sins aren't some things I, I, I trifle with every once in a while. Sin is who I am. Do you understand that? Do you, do you believe that? The second question is this. Well, God certainly knows that. What does he think about it? You have to come back next week for that part. Let's pray. Father, so many of us want a spiritual advisor or a friend or counselor. We want Jesus to um, kind of point us in the right direction, but let us really be in control and run things the way we want to. Father, probably the vast majority of us, myself included, often have a uh, grossly optimistic and miscalculated view of our character. We don't want to think about being identified with sin. We want to say, yeah, but wait a minute, I've done some good things. I can say, yeah, look where where they put the character of Tom Ricks and look where they put the character of Hitler. Doesn't that count? Doesn't that gap count for something? Father, the truth is, everybody should have been over there on that side. Not that we've all done such evil, but we are all completely flawed by sin. Lord, I pray that you would burn that truth into our hearts, not to make us feel awful, not to, not to smash us, not to, not to, not to hurt us and, and, and abuse us, but rather, Father, it's the first step in the diagnosis. It's the, it's the realization that I am in desperate, desperate need of a Savior that will allow me to go on in Romans 3 and to discover the glorious grace and mercy of God for those who acknowledge their sin and call on a Savior. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to that truth, we pray in your name. Amen.